0: Well, take that Bible and look over to 1 John, 1 John. We come back to the first letter of John, and we're just looking at these opening four verses and tackling that together, and I've titled the message, The Proclamation of the Son. And we we said that 1 John is unique because there's no salutation uh, in it in the sense of a personal greeting. John the Apostle gets right after it, not even naming himself, he doesn't even really name his audience, and we call this the prologue, and it just reveals the substance of the gospel, namely that eternal life has been manifested in his Son who became flesh, who, who was born. He, he took on flesh, and these truths here set forth the very foundation of, of our faith, and it asserts the absolute truthfulness of the person of Jesus Christ. And I'll mention something maybe a little bit later in my sermon of somebody that I got to share this week with. And very interesting, the conversation. And you'll see maybe as we get into the text where it will fit. But we're looking at these opening four verses in what we can call four successive stages. We said it's very detailed it's, uh, it's packed full, and uh, we want to begin to pick it apart one sequence at a time. So we're looking at these four successive stages. We looked at the first two two weeks ago. The first one was the Son's eternal preexistence. The Son's eternal preexistence. Look at First 1 John 1, one. There John says, "...that which was from the beginning." which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. We, we noted there the Son's eternal preexistence because of that phrase there, that which was from the beginning. Now, we, we said there that that word beginning can have a number of different meanings in the word of God. Sometimes when that is used for beginning, it can mean the beginning of the incarnation Of Jesus Christ. It could just be talking about the beginning when he was born. It could also be the beginning of the gospel message in other places of scripture. Sometimes it's even used as the beginning of our Christian experience. If you're in here this morning and you're in Christ, at some point you begin that relationship and sometimes that word goes back to even that Christian experience. But we noted as well that also in the Word of God, and I think the thought of John here, this beginning is the pre existent nature that places Christ before the incarnation. In other words, before he came to this earth. And it places him in perfect union with God the Father from all eternity. And we cited the scripture there in John's Gospel in 1 1. You probably know it by heart. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word, what? Was God. But He was in the beginning. That's not the beginning of when He was born, and not the beginning when He took on the flesh, not the beginning of their Christian experience, but the beginning here before everything was ever created. He was with the Father. And so we understand from the Word of God that Jesus Christ is coexistent, coeternal, co-eternal, and co-equal with God. And remember, Jesus said that he who has seen me has seen God. And one of the reasons we noted there that we took it to the beginning way back in his preexistent nature was because of verse 2. Look at verse 2. There, John says, the life was manifest. We have seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life, comma, this phrase, which was with the Father, in other words, eternal life was with the Father from all time, from a preexistent nature. And so here, Jesus Christ, clearly revealed by John the Apostle, is God. So there's the Son's pre-existent nature. But secondly, we noted there, and we left off just after this, the Son's historical manifestation. The Son's historical manifestation. That though he existed from all time, there never was a time when there was not Christ, the Bible is very explicit that he himself was revealed. He himself was made manifest. And so look what it says there in verse 2. It says, the life was made manifest. And John says, we have seen it. We testify to it. And we proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And so here is the direct personal experience of these apostles with the living Lord Jesus Christ. They had scrutinized him so carefully that they had no doubt to his physical reality and identity. And why that's important for John here is that the Gnostics, the false teachers in this time of the writing, were saying that the body was evil, remember? And then they therefore said that Christ really didn't have a physical body. That Christ himself only appeared to be a man. But not according to John. John here says that the one who was preexistent from all time in face-to-face communion with the Father was made manifest. In other words, he came into this earth. He took on flesh. And so he wants to say that he was made manifest. The idea there is that he was revealed, in other words, he was born and he lived. He was made clear. It speaks there, that phrase made manifest, of the revelation of Jesus Christ at his first coming. Okay. Now this is the teaching of Scripture. Remember it says this in First Timothy 3.16. Paul said that he was revealed in the flesh. That's the thought here. In other words, the one who was in perfect communion from all time, the one who never had a beginning was revealed in his incarnation in the flesh. Peter puts it this way in First 1 Peter 1.20. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was revealed at the end of time for your sake. That's the teaching of John. That Jesus Christ, though preexistent, dwelling with his Father, was revealed and made known at the end of time for your sake. The writer of Hebrews put it this way in 9.26, that he has been revealed once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So over and over and over again, the scripture says that the preexistent Christ was made manifest. He took on flesh. And by the way, He will come again. Look over at First John chapter 2, just glance over there at verse 28, 228, where John says, and now little children, abide in Him so that when, and here's that phrase, He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. And so the teaching of Scripture that he appeared at his incarnation at his birth and in his life, but he will come again and he will appear again. Now you say, what's the importance of his appearance? Well, there's so much we can say, but look at first John chapter three, verse five. Here's why it's so very important that he was made manifest. It says in first John three, five, you know that he appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin so beloved listen he appeared to take away your sin so as we come to the celebration of good friday this coming friday right here at 6 30 we will remember his death and so he was made manifest he was revealed and the purpose that he was revealed is in order to take away our sins now look again at the text it's interesting, back in 1 John chapter 1, you'll, you'll note there that John's really clear. He says at the end of verse 2, he was with the Father and he was made manifest to us. And there, John is speaking of that apostolic community, both of the apostles themselves as well as the people who were in the writing and when they first read this letter, and so here, Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And so we've seen here the Son's pre-existent nature. And then secondly, the Son's historical manifestation. And I bring you to where we are today. To the third implication is what we'll call the apostolic proclamation. The apostolic proclamation. Look at verse 3. It says there, and he repeats himself, for emphasis I believe, that which we have seen... And heard, he said, we proclaim also to you so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. And he always goes back between the to us and the, the to you. In other words, he, he's saying here that this manifestation of Christ, the incarnation of his life, is not just designed for the spiritually elite, because that's kind of what the, the Gnostics were teaching. They were key, teaching kind of like a, a super knowledge, a, a super elitism, and only certain people can hold to certain truths, but John says not so. He was made manifest to us, but he has been, Christ, given to you. So it is not the private experience of the apostles, it is for us as well. Now as John begins to uh, articulate this apostolic proclamation, he masterfully does so and he uses two verbs to describe this proclamation. Look back at verse 2. He says there, we have seen it in verse 2, and testify to it There's that first verb, okay? And then the second verb is in verse 3, where he says, we have seen it and heard it and we proclaim it also. So the thought here is he has been manifested and by apostolic proclamation, they are testifying to it and they are proclaiming it. Let's look at those two little principles here under the proclamation. He says in verse 2, we have seen it and we testify to it. That that word there, to testify, just means to, to witness. I think we understand it. It just means to testify. It's the thought here of an eyewitness testimony of what the apostles have seen, what they have heard, what they have handled, and what they have touched concerning the word of life they are then, listen, it's very important for us, are testifying to the very life of Jesus Christ. And what a witness does in giving testimony is gather, if you will, we understand this from our own judicial system, firsthand information. And so what John is saying is I'm not giving you something that has been handed down to me from another. I'm telling you, that this preexistent son who was made manifest, I've seen him, I've heard him, I've handled him, if you will, and I'm now, he says in this proclamation, testifying to you of the person of Christ. Let me just trace a few places in scriptures where they state this. Look back in the Gospel of John for a moment, okay? The Gospel of John. In other words, he's building here, the foundation of what we believe. Look at all these scriptures that speak of this type of testimony. In John chapter 1, we've already read part of that, but you remember in verse 14 there where John the Apostle says, and the Word became flesh, and I love that little phrase, it dwelt among us, and here's the key phrase, And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But John here is telling us, by apostolic proclamation, that we have seen His glory. In other words, I'm not hearing this. I've seen Him. And so we're dealing here with the authority of the apostles. Look over to John chapter 15. John will state this, John chapter 15, as he begins to illustrate here, he said in 15 verse 27, speaking to the apostles, and you also will bear witness, okay, and if you back up when the helper comes in 26, I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also, here's our word, will bear witness. Why? Because you have been with me from the beginning. In other words, we are dealing with the foundation of our faith, the apostles and the prophets, who are testifying as to what they have seen and to what they have heard. Look over at John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John will state this there. He will say of his own writing that in 1935, he who saw it, and if you back up, saw what, 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. And here's why. That you may also believe or you also may believe. And so this is the eyewitness testimony of the apostles. So it was made manifest, but now under the proclamation, they're claiming and declaring what they have seen in the life of Christ. Look over just at the next chapter in John chapter 20. Probably a scripture familiar to you. In John chapter 20, in verse 30, Where John says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. And you say, well, why did he write? Continue to glance down at John 21. Look at verse 24. John 21, verse 24 There, John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And so you can just see over and over again, you are holding in your hands the Scriptures. You are holding in your hands what the apostles have written. And what they have written is what they have seen and what they have heard and what they have handled and they're testifying to it. In fact, just go back one gospel in Luke chapter one, in Luke chapter one, I think this is important and I know I'm showing you a lot of scriptures, maybe more than noble, more than normal, but look at Luke chapter one. You remember the language of this, but watch it again. Here, Luke, the doctor, is dedicating his gospel to Theophilus, but he says this in Luke 1.1, Inasmuch as we have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things which have been accomplished amongst us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. I love that phrase. They were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word and they delivered them to us and it seemed good to me also, verse 3, having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And so here, he's getting that testimony from the eyewitness of the apostle himself. In fact, Glance again at Luke chapter 24. Look, look there, all the way to the end of Luke's gospel. And Luke here is giving the words of Christ in Luke 24. And, and in verse 46, remember with the disciples on the road, he, it says in 24, 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, this is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name, His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and now this phrase in 48. You are, what? Witnesses of these things. So enough for me just to say to all of us and to our, to our young people here today, This is what our faith is built on. This is what Ephesians 2.20 talks about being built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And of course, to be an apostle, you had to see the living Lord Jesus Christ. You had to be in ministry with Christ. You had to be a witness of his resurrection. But this is the testimony. And in fact, look at another one. I mean, they're all over. But look over at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1. Go all the way to the end there. Second Peter chapter one, of course, this is the Apostle Peter writing. And I love this statement. I love this statement. He says in Second Peter chapter one in verse 16, here's to bolster our faith, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were what? eyewitnesses of his majesty. And of course, he's speaking there of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ on the mountain. Peter's just saying, listen, I was an eyewitness of his majesty. And then look in verse 17, for when we received honor and glory, he received from God the Father and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And so here is the apostolic proclamation built off an eyewitness testimony regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But that's not all John says under this apostolic proclamation. Look back now to 1 John. He says, not only do we testify to it, but, but this is important in verse 3. It's the lead verb. You remember we noted there. He says in verse 3, and that which we have seen and heard, he said, we proclaim also to you. And the ideal of proclaim there is just to report. It's to declare, and it's the ideal of reporting with reference to the source from which the message comes. And so it involves really a passing on of truth to others of what has already been imparted to them. Here's the implication. Having been an eyewitness of our living Lord, they are in a position to authoritatively proclaim Christ to the world so that book those scriptures that you're holding rest on the eyewitness account of the apostles and John is making it unmistakably clear that the life that they're bearing witness to is the historical person of Jesus Christ who was revealed and made manifest now you say why does why this grand effort from eternity past and then seen by the apostles, then preached by them, then recorded by them. And then John will conclude this little paragraph by stating his objective. Look back to the text. Here's why he's included this. He says, We proclaim this also to you, verse 3, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. And so here, thirdly, that apostolic proclamation is not the end in itself. That's not where John finishes. It leads to a fourth and final feature just in this opening paragraph, the apostolic purpose, okay? There's a proclamation. He's testifying. They are proclaiming. But here's the purpose, okay? It's the result here of the proclamation. There's an immediate purpose, and then there's a a purpose and an increasing purpose of joy. Let's look at the immediate purpose first. It says there in verse 3, we're proclaiming this to you so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. Here's the expressed purpose, that, that we would have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship, John says, is with the Father and with the Son. Now, that's a, a word there that we've seen before. No doubt you've seen the word fellowship. It's just the, the Greek word koinonia, and uh, it's a very, very important word. But, but what's interesting in 1 John is that it's only found four times in 1 John. It's not found in 2 John. It's not found in 3 John. And he doesn't use the word koinonia, fellowship, at all in his gospel. In fact, all four occurrences of that term fellowship are found right here in verse 3 and in verse 6 and in verse 7, where John is concerned to bring his readers into fellowship with those who truly proclaim the word and and those who are in fellowship with the father and the son and i think the reason john uses this word is he does so against the background of what he believes is the false claim of the gnostics who were claiming to have fellowship with god and they were claiming were these false teachers and they were doing leading their readers astray and so john wants to state it right He wants to say, listen, we've testified to this, we've proclaimed this, and here's why. Because we want you to have fellowship with us. You say, well, what is exactly that phrase there in verse 3? To have fellowship with us, and indeed our koinonia, our fellowship is with the Father. Well, the word fellowship, it's one of those words that it's common, but it's so profound, it's almost hard to explain. What the word means is just things held in common. It could even talk in biblical times such as things of ownership or property, or we might say that a married couple uh, is in fellowship together. In fact, in the New Testament, it describes someone who has something in common with someone else. In fact, that word is used in Luke's gospel in 5.10 where it says that James and John were partners. In other words, they were in fellowship together. They had something in common together. They were fishermen. And so it's the idea of partnership, of active partnership. And fellowship, really what it is, is an authentic partnership with our Lord. And it's a partnership that we share with all believers. It is primarily a fellowship with God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. Peter uses the word this way. He says, speaking of that same koinonia word, that we are partakers of the divine nature. So it's a very intimate word. In other words, if you're in Christ, you are in fellowship with God and with Christ. You are participants with Him in a personal relationship with God Himself. That is why when Paul uses the word in Corinthians, and he says basically, don't date young people, someone who doesn't know the Lord, don't become unequally yoked, because there Paul will say, what fellowship does light have with what? Darkness. And so there's, a, there's an intimate, personal relationship in that word. In fact, you remember in Acts 2, where it says the early church was devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine and to fellowship. In other words, that early church had things in common it's the sharing of li- the life of Christ, it's the sharing together of the apostolic message. So, in this sense, listen, fellowship is not a culture, fellowship is not a custom. Fellowship isn't even a racial background, if you will. It's an adherence to the person of Christ and to the gospel message of the apostles themselves. And so it's, this, it's a deep, profound, mutual participation in a common cause or a shared life. But it's not just a mere partnership together. It's really a mutual life and love of those who are one in the Spirit, Let me see if I can unpack it just in another way. When you are saved, you are placed into a relationship with God. You are placed into an eternal partnership with God and with Christ. And this partnership, the scripture says, is so intimate that you become the temple of God. And that you are in some ways undistinguishable from Christ. Do you remember Paul said, I live. Yet not I, but what? Christ lives in me. There is a real abiding partnership and fellowship. In fact, according to the word of God, in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, you have the fellowship of the Holy Spirit you become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You become the temple of God. It is the place where Christ dwells and the whole trinity begins to take up residence in your life and you now possess the life of God in your soul that is your partnership, common participation in eternal life. So let me just help you just with one implication of that. If someone were to say, I'm out of fellowship, that would be absolutely impossible, okay? Because once you've come to Christ, you have entered into that fellowship, and at that point, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. You may lose your joy. You may lose that intimacy through sin, but you will never be separated from a relationship with Christ, Romans 6, because of your union with Christ. So here's what John is saying. I'm writing to you, I'm proclaiming this, I'm testifying this for this purpose that you would have fellowship with us. Let me see if I can just gather it together. You say, well, why would, he, why would he be telling these people that? Because the Gnostics were trying to articulate a different kind of fellowship. And the purpose that John is giving this is so that you would have the assurance of your salvation. And what's amazing here is he ties this fellowship. Look back at verse 3, which is kind of amazing. He said that you may have fellowship with what? Us. In other words, fellowship doesn't exist. I don't, it's hard to say this. Outside of apostolic doctrine, you see. In other words, real fellowship exists with us, with the apostles' teaching. Now look what he says in, the, in verse 3. And he said, and indeed, and then he qualifies it, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And it's, it's amazing because now for the first time he identifies the one who was made manifest. You say, well, who was made manifest? Well, there's the name. You see it in verse 3, with his Son. In other words, we understand from Scripture that Jesus is God's Son. He's the Son, and he's Jesus Christ. Now... Hang on with me, and I'll try to put this together so that you can see it. His name is Jesus, and Jesus means Savior, Matthew 1.21. It is the name, if you will, for his humanity. But he's not just the Son, Jesus Christ, his name and his humanity. He's also Christ, and Christ in the Hebrew is the word Messiah, and it literally means the word anointed. And so for John, as he writes here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he's writing about the Father, and he's writing about the Son, Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. So let me, let me just make this implication to you, okay? Fellowship with God, then, is not the result of a tradition. It is not even bound to a dom- denomination. It is not even bound to a common experience. Fellowship is built from a theological framework of what God has done in Christ Jesus. Does that make sense? So I'm fishing on Monday. Psh, have you ever gone deep sea fishing? I never. My son's never been. So I took him. You know, it's kind of the ones you get the weight on the bottom and you drop it and you just, you know, it's on a big pole and you make two hooks and um you just drop it and you don't you can't always fill it but as we're going out to see it's just a small group of 12 people and i meet this guy and his name is john and i told him i where i was from and somehow i he asked me what i do i said i'm a pastor he said oh i'm a pastor too i said oh really john i go where do you pastor he goes i pastor in irvine and uh I just kind of let it go there. I was with my son, spending some time with him. But sure enough, you know, about halfway through when you get kind of tired and uh, you've pulled those fish out, and uh, uh, I said, what do you believe? He goes, oh, we believe a little bit of everything. Interesting. We believe a little bit of everything. I said, oh, tell me more about that. Well, we just believe basically there's many different ways to God. And Christ may be one of them, but you can't settle on that. And so he began to talk to me about aliens. Now, this is amazing. This is a college-educated guy from Irvine, and he wasn't joking. And he's going into his whole philosophy about God, about salvation, about aliens, how you can't trust the Scripture, that there's no absolute truth. So I just calmly told him about Christ. I said, John, you know, the Bible says that Christ is the only way to God. And it was interesting. You say, what did he do with that? He refuted that. I told him that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He refuted that. You say, Scott, what did you do? I pushed him over. No, I didn't. I didn't, okay? And I'm I'm just sharing with him. I didn't push him over. I said, no, John, this this is what the Scripture said. You say, okay, and what happened? I kept talking to him about the gospel very calmly. It didn't feel like I had to press him and, you know, grab him or hook him up and put him over the the edge. I just begin to tell him, you say, well, Scott, did he repent? No, he didn't repent. You say, well, what happened? Well, nothing happened. But I just thought this as I walked away. One thing's for sure. He doesn't know God. You see what I mean? He doesn't know God because he doesn't know the Son, Jesus Christ. There is no way that you can talk about having a relationship with God apart from the apostles' message. Do you see? There is not many ways to God. There is only one way to God, and it's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so the Gnostics came in, and they were just saying, listen, you you know what? there's a secret path and there's a secret knowledge and Jesus really didn't exist. Jesus was kind of a phantom. He was a little bit ghost-like. You can't really put your, you know, bank your faith on it. John says, no way. John just says, listen, I've seen him. I've heard him. I've handled him. I've touched him. I've heard his words. I've saw his miracles. I've testified to it. I'm proclaiming it to you. And the reason he's doing it is to show you what true fellowship is all about. True fellowship in the text there is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Listen, Christian fellowship at its core is a fellowship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. And Christ is the way to fellowship with God. I'll just put it this way, just for you, not someone else. If you embrace Christ... If you trust Christ, if you submit to Christ, you can call God Father. You can call Him Abba Father. You are part of the family of God. And the reason John's writing is he wants you to have assurance of that. Do you see? You say, Well, Scott, what gives assurance? This. So I'm just asking you, is that what you affirm? You say, Well, Scott, I, I, Pastor, I think I do affirm that. Then you have assurance. See, in other words, this is the way to fellowship. So listen, any religious attempt, and I don't know if I'm stepping on toes here, but here goes, okay? Any religious attempt for unity apart from the confession of Jesus Christ in His humanity, fully man, and deity, fully God, is superficial at best. Fellowship, Grace Church of the Valley, exists By embracing the Son whom the Father has sent. And if you embrace the Son, you have assurance. See, what Gnosticism was, you know what it was? It was a Christless religion. And that's the guy whom I met. I just kept pressing him. I just kept pressing him. You know, the Bible says this. Well, you know, you really can't trust the Bible. And I'm thinking in my mind, oh, yes, I can. And I tell him that. Well, well, who do you t- uh, and then uh, can you, young people seriously? Who's he trusting? Himself. He's made it up. He's got aliens that have come down. Uh, alien, they're on other planet. I'm like, whoa, John, that's pretty far out. You know, John, what do you do? I've been making. I've been in the business background. It's a very wealthy man, I think and I've made other people very wealthy, and I'm just tired of it, and I've been on this journey. I said, John, you've got to read the gospel of your own name. You've got to read the gospel of John, but he's in a Christless religion, is he not? It's like when Ben's showing you the screen. There's a lot of Christless religions in Thailand. just breaks your heart, but listen, real fellowship, real koinonia happens when you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So he came up to me at the very end of the trip, and, and I think he kind of felt bad. And he said, uh, he goes, hey, you're a good guy. I said, oh, thanks, John. <laughs> he said, keep doing what you're doing because you're going to make the world a better place. And, uh, and the reason I'm telling you that is far beyond me being a good guy. This is the truth, is it not? This is the truth. So you're going to sit there. Here's your, your, the answer you've got to come to. Either you believe it or you call John and all the apostles a liar. See, that's where I went as a young man. There were times when I was a late teenager and I thought, man, can I give myself to this thing? And I just had to keep grappling with the scripture. And I realized that we're waiting the foundation of our message in the person of Christ, but we know about the person of Christ because of the eyewitness testimony. So listen, this this, this guy's like 90 now. He's 60 years after the cross. Listen, I'm not gonna mess with him. I'd put all my hope in him rather than a guy on a fishing boat, right? So listen, you he wants us to have real fellowship. And you know what else is the final thing? Why else does he write? Look at verse 4. He says, I want you to have fellowship with us, the apostles. And our fellowship was with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things. You see that little phrase? It has a little bracket maybe in your Bible. So that our joy may be made complete. So watch this, there's an immediate joy, I call that fellowship. There's secondly here an increasing joy. And here's the conclusion of how the gospel has come to us and has passed on to us. The apostles testified they proclaimed what they had seen and heard about Christ and that message has been preserved in the writing of scripture and one of its chief aims is our joy. <laughs> I just believe that. I mean Karl Marx said that the first requisite for happiness is the abolition of religion. John says that Christ gives you joy that can never be duplicated in the world. And so John says, listen, I'm writing in order. Now, it's a very interesting phrase that our joy may be made complete. Now, I'm reading that from the NASV, our joy, Some translations, like the King James, if you're holding that, I think it's the NIV, says to make your joy complete. So John the Apostle, which one is it? Are you writing, and he says we, I I take that as the apostles, we are writing these things so that our joy would be made complete, like John and the apostles, or is he writing these things, the things that presumably just came in the opening verses, so that your joy may be made complete. I think he's just saying that the writer's joy would be incomplete unless his readers also shared it. I'm thinking of look over just to the right, Third John, Third John. I think he's really writing for their joy to be made complete, but I think in their joy being complete, complete, his joy is complete. Remember this one in Third John Four? I have no, third John, just verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in, what, the truth. Listen, you know why John's writing? He wants you to have joy. So listen, as we embark on 1 John, and I don't, can't unpack all of it, we'll let the book do that, he just wants to give you joy. And he realizes one of the dangerous results of false teaching is it will rob you of your joy. You know, the the sad part is for any of us, to whatever degree we've set under sound teaching, one of its aims is to provide joy. Well, John had these false teachers in who were claiming something other than gospel. And when they were doing that, they were robbing the believers of their joy in Christ. And so John writes, the apostles writes, so that our joy would be made complete. But I think he's saying that our joy will only be made complete when I know that you're walking in the truth. Now certainly when you look at the gospel of John, joy is abiding in Christ, John 15, 4. It's asking and receiving in prayer, John 15, 7 joy and John, John's gospel is bearing fruit in 15.8 and fruit bearing is keeping his commands and loving one another. But what this joy is, is a deepening awareness of our oneness with God. It's a deepening joy of our oneness with his son. It's a deepening awareness of the possession of eternal life. It is a deepening relationship with the living God. What joy. And here the joy is linked back again with the Father and with his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So you say, why does he write this? Look over at 1 John chapter 5. I'm just going to, we'll finish with this. It says to us there, it says, this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life And this life is in his Son. Hear it this clear. Whoever has the Son has life. And whoever does not have the Son of God does not have, what, life. He says it again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So if you just back up with me in the opening four verses, how do you know? Well, just let me ask you, do you believe in God Almighty? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that he was preexistent in nature? That before the incarnation, he always was from the beginning. There never was a time when he did not exist. Do you believe that Jesus Christ was made manifest? Do you believe that he was revealed? Do you believe that he was born in his incarnation? And that's the thought because here God the Father has sent his son and then the gospel goes on to tell us he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sins. He appeared to take away our sins. He was gloriously raised on the third day. And listen, if you've embraced that by faith, then you have the assurance that you indeed are in fellowship with God and with his son. It's that simple. You say, but pastor, that sounds so simple. It should be. What are you adding to it? You say, well, I just, I'm looking at my life and I'm looking, I'm wondering, and I understand that. We'll talk more about that in 1 John. But let's talk about this building block here. It is belief in God the Father sending God the Son. And you have to come to saving faith in that truth. And once you do, your foundation is set and then you grow with the other things because he's going to go on next week. Uh, It won't be next week. It will be two weeks. You say, why? What's next week? Easter, right? So we got to stop. You bring someone next week, okay? Nick, are you coming next week? I want you here, okay? I I like Nick. I like Nick. You come. Easter Sunday next week. Bring a friend with you. I was thinking about that passage in... 1 Corinthians 15 on what happens when you deny the resurrection. We should pack this place out. Come on. 8.30, where's Muxlow? Are we having breakfast at your house? Yes. Becky and Pearl are feeding everybody. Yes. Um, what time is that? 8.30? 8.30 there. And then we were gonna do the whole service. Did I share that with you there? Right on the river. But we just thought if we're bringing visitors, it'd probably be easier to be here at 1030. So we'll be there at 830 for breakfast on the river. I'm going to go. I just want to sing hymns with Dave Jackson. Can we do that? Um, 830 on the river for breakfast, just some fellowship. Can we call it that? Real true fellowship with because we're all related if you're in Christ in that way. And then we'll be back here at 1030. But the week after that. We're going to pick up John on walking in the light. He begins to then describe what true fellowship looks like beyond the foundation of God the Father and God the Son. We're going to have a great time, but listen, my aim, make no mistake about it, is John's aim. I want you to be encouraged. I want you, when we're done in, I don't know, six, eight months with this book, I want you to walk out and say, I know where I stand in Christ. Because I think one of the greatest dangers is to not have that assurance. And I know some people who are genuinely saved and live their whole life without the assurance that they're really in Christ. And that is a miserable, miserable time. Because I told you, that was me for many, many years. And uh, I, listen, he writes that you may know you have eternal life. Here's the foundation of it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together.